Chapter Seven of The Lucky Piece: A Tale of the North Woods by Albert Bigelow Payne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven: The Path That Leads Back to Boyhood. The sun was not yet above the hills when Frank Weatherby left the lodge next morning. He halted for a moment to procure some convenient receptacle and was supplied with a trout basket, which, slung across his shoulder, gave him quite the old feeling of preparation for a day's sport, instead of merely an early trip up McIntyre. Robin Farnham was already up and away with his party, but another guide loitered about the cabin and showed a disposition to be friendly. "'Better wait till after breakfast,' he said. It don't take long to run up McIntyre and back. You'll have plenty of time. But it looks clear up there now. It may be foggy later on. Besides, I've just bribed the cook to give me a bite, so I'm not afraid of getting hungry. The guide brought out a crumpled, rusty-looking fly-hook and a little roll of line. Take these, he urged. You'll cross a brook or two where there's some trout. Maybe you can get a few while you're resting. I'd lend you a rod if we had one here, but you can cut a switch that will do. The fish are mostly pretty small. The sight of the gaily colored flies, the line, and the feeling of the basket at his side was a combination not to be resisted. The years seemed to roll backward and Frank felt the old, eager longing to be following the tumbling, swirling water, to feel the sudden tug at the end of a drifting line. It was a rare morning. The abundant forest was rich with every shade of green and bright with dew. Below, where the path lay, it was still dim and silent, but the earliest touch of sunrise had set the treetops aglow and started a bird concert in the high branches. The McIntyre trail was not a hard one to follow. Neither was it steep for a considerable distance, and Frank strode along rapidly and without fatigue. In spite of his uneasiness of spirit the night before, he had slept the sleep of youth and health, and the smell of the morning woods, the feel of the basket at his side, the following of this fascinating trail brought him nearer to boyhood with every forward step. He would go directly to the top of the mountain, he thought, find the curious flower or fungus which Robin had seen, and on his return trip would stop at the brooks and perhaps bring home a basket of trout, after which he would find Constance and lay the hole at her feet as a proof that he was not altogether indifferent to her wishes. Also, it might be, as a token that he had renewed his old ambition to be something more than a mere lover of ease and pleasure and a dreamer of dreams. The suspicion stirred by Edith Morrison the night before had grown dim, indeed had almost vanished in the clear glow of morning. Constance might wish to punish him, that was quite likely, though it was highly improbable that she should have selected this method. In fact, it was quite certain that any possibility of causing heartache, especially where Edith Morrison was concerned, 
would have been most repugnant to a girl of the character and ideals of Constance Jean. She admired Robin and found pleasure in his company. That she made no concealment of these things was the best evidence that there was nothing to be concealed. That unconsciously she and Robin were learning to care for each other he thought most unlikely. He remembered Constance as she had seemed during the days of their meeting at Lennox, when she had learned to know and he believed to care for him. It had never been like that. It would not be like that now with another. There would be no other. He would be more as she would have him, more like Robin Farnham. Why, he was beginning this very moment. Those years of idleness had dropped away. He had regarded himself as beyond the time of beginning. What nonsense! At twenty-four, full of health and the joy of living, swinging up a mountain trail to win a flower for the girl he loved, with a cavalcade of old hopes and dreams and ambitions once more riding through his heart. Today was life. Yesterday was already with the vanished ages. Then for a moment he recalled the sorrow of Edith Morrison and resolved within him to see her immediately upon his return, to prove to her how groundless and unjust had been her conclusions. She was hardly to blame. She was only a mountain girl and did not understand. It was absurd that he, who knew so much of the world and of human nature, should have followed himself even for a moment to be influenced by the primitive notions of this girl of the hills. The trail grew steeper now. The young man found himself breathing a trifle quicker as he pushed upward. Sometimes he seized a limb to aid him in swinging up a rocky steep. Again he parted dewy bushes that locked their branches across the way. Presently there was a sound of water falling over stones, and a moment later he had reached a brook that hurried down the mountainside, leaping and laughing as it ran. There was a narrow place and a log where the trail crossed, with a little fall and a deep pool just below it. Frank did not mean to stop for trout now, but it occurred to him to try this brook, that he might judge which was the better to fish on his return. He looked about until he found a long, slim shoot of some tough wood, and this he cut for a rod. Then he put on a bit of the line. A longer piece would not do in this little stream and at the end he strung a short leader and two flies. It was queer, but he found his fingers trembling just a little with eagerness as he adjusted those flies, and when he held the rig at arm's length and gave it a little twitch in the old way, it was not so bad, after all, he thought. As he stealthily gained the exact position where he could drop the lure on the eddy below the fall, and poised the slender rod for the cast, the only earthly thing that seemed important was the placing of those two tiny bits of gimp and feathers just on that spot where the water swirled under the edge of the black overhanging rock. Gently now, so. A quick flash, a swish, a sharp thrilling tug, an instinctive movement of the wrist, 
and something was leaping and glancing on the pebbles below something dark and golden and gaily red-spotted something which no man who has ever trailed a brook can see without a quickening heart a speckled trout certainly it was but a boy who leaped down and disentangled the captured fish and held it joyously for a moment admiring its markings and its size before dropping it into the basket at his side pretty good for such a little brook he said aloud i wonder if there are many like that he made another cast but without result i frightened them he thought i came lumbering down like a duffer besides they can see me here he turned and followed the stream with his eye it seemed a succession of falls and fascinating pools and the pools grew even larger and more enticing he could not resist trying just once more and when another goodly trout was in his creel and then another all else in life became hazy in the joy of following that stream from fall to fall and from pool to pool of dropping those gay little flies just in the particular spot which would bring that flash and swish that delightful tug and the gaily speckled capture that came glancing to his feet why not do his fishing now in these morning hours when the time was right later the sport might be poor or none at all at this rate he could soon fill his creel and then make his way up the mountain he halted a moment to line the basket with damp moss and water grasses to keep his catch fresh then he put aside every other purpose for the business of the moment creeping around bushes or leaping from stone to stone sometimes slipping to his knees in the icy water caring not for discomfort or bruises heedless of everything except the zeal of pursuit and the zest of capture the glory of the bright singing water spilling from pool to pool the filtering sunlight the choiring birds the resinous smell of the forest all the things which lure the feet of young men over the paths trod by their fathers in the long-forgotten days the stream widened the pools grew deeper and the trout larger as he descended soon he decided to keep only the larger fish all others he tossed back as soon as taken then there came a break ahead and presently the brook pitched over a higher fall than any he had passed into a larger stream almost a river a great regret came upon the young man as he viewed this fine water that rushed and swirled among a thousand boulders ideal stepping stones with ideal pools below oh now for a rod and reel with a length of line to cast far ahead into those splendid pools the configuration of the land caused this larger stream to pursue a course around rather than down the mountainside and frank decided that he could follow it for a distance and then with the aid of his compass strike straight for the mountain top without making his way back upstream but first he must alter his tackle 
he looked about and presently cut a much longer and stronger rod and lengthened his line accordingly then he made his way among the boulders and began to whip the larger pools cast after cast resulted in no return he began to wonder after all if it would not be a mistake to fish this larger and less fruitful stream but suddenly there came a great gleam of light where his flies fell and though the fish failed to strike frank's heart gave a leap for he knew now that in this water though they would be fewer in number there were trout which were well worth while he cast again over the dark foamy pool and this time the flash was followed by such a tug as at first made him fear that his primitive tackle might not hold oh then he longed for a reel and a net this was a fish that could not be lightly lifted out but must be worked to a landing place and dragged ashore holding the line taut he looked for such a spot and selecting the shallow edge of a flat stone drew his prize nearer and nearer drawing in the rod itself hand over hand and finally the line until the struggling leaping capture was in his hands this was something like this was sport indeed there was no thought now of turning back to carry home even a few fish taken with such a tackle would redeem him for many shortcomings in constance's eyes he was sorry now that he had kept any of the smaller fry. He followed down the stream, stepping from boulder to boulder, casting as he went. Here and there trout rose, but they were old and wary and hesitated to strike. He got another at length, somewhat smaller than the first, and lost still another which he thought was larger than either. Then, for a considerable distance, he whipped the most attractive water without reward, changing his flies at length, but to no purpose. "'It must be getting late,' he reflected aloud, and for the first time thought of looking at his watch. He was horrified to find that it was nearly eleven o'clock, by which time he had expected to have reached the top of McIntyre and to have been well on his way back to the lodge. He must start at once for the climb would be long and rough here, out of the regular trail. Yet he paused to make one more cast over a black pool where there was a fallen log and bubbles floating on the surface. His arm had grown tired swinging the heavy green rod, and his aim was poor. The fly struck a little twig and hung there, dangling in the air a twitch and they were free and had dropped to the surface of the water yet barely to reach it for in that instant a wave rolled up and divided a great black and gold shape made a porpoise leap into the air the lower fly disappeared and an instant later frank was gripping the tough green rod with both hands while the water and trees and sky blended and swam before him in the intensity of the struggle to hold and to keep holding that black and gold monster at the other end of the tackle to keep him from getting back under that log 
from twisting the line around a limb, in a word, to prevent him from regaining freedom. It would be lunacy to drag this fish ashore by force. The line or the fly would certainly give way, even if the rod would stand. Indeed, when he tried to work his capture a little nearer, it held so like a rock that he believed for a moment the line was already fast. But then came a sudden rush to the right and another stand, and to the left, with a plunge for depth. And with each of these rushes Frank's heart stood still, for he felt that against the power of this monster his tackle could not hold. Every nerve and fiber in his body seemed to concentrate on the slow-moving point of dark line where the tense strand touched the water. A little this way or that it swung, perhaps yielded a trifle, or drew down a bit as the great fish in its battle for life gave an inch only to begin a still fiercer struggle in this final tug-of-war. To all else the young man was oblivious. A bird dropped down on a branch and shouted at him. He did not hear it. A cloud swept over the sun. He did not see it. Life, death, eternity mattered nothing. Only that moving point of line mattered. Only the thought that the powerful, unconquered shape below might presently go free. And then, inch by inch it seemed, the steady wrist and the crude tackle began to gain advantage. The monster of black and gold was forced to yield. Scarcely breathing, Frank watched the point of the line, inch by inch, draw nearer to a little pebbly shore that ran down, where, if anywhere, he could land his prey. Once, indeed, the great fellow came to the surface, then, seeing his captor, made a fierce dive and plunged into a wild struggle, during which Hope almost died. Another dragging toward the shore, another struggle and yet another, each becoming weaker and less enduring, until, lo, there on the pebbles, gasping and striking with his splendid tail, lay the conquered king of fish. It required but an instant for the captor to pounce upon him and to secure him with a piece of line through his gills, and this he replaced with a double willow branch, which he could tie together and to the basket for this fish was altogether too large to go inside. Exhausted and weak from the struggle, Frank sat down to contemplate his capture and to regain strength before starting up the mountain. Five pounds, certainly, this fish weighed, he thought, and he tenderly regarded the fly that had lured it to the death, and carefully wound up the cheap bit of line that it held true. No such fish had been brought to the lodge, and then, boy that he was, he thought how proud he should be of his triumph, and with what awe Constance would regard his skill in its capture. And in that moment it was somehow borne in upon him that with this battle and this victory there had come, in truth, the awakening, that the indolent, luxury-loving man had become as a sleepwalker of yesterday 
who would never cross the threshold of today. A drop of water on his hand aroused him. The sun had disappeared, the sky was overcast. There was rain in the air. He must hurry, he thought, and get up the mountain and away before the storm. He could not see the peak, for here the trees were tall and thick, but he knew his direction by the compass and by the slope of the land. From the end of his late rod he cut a walking stick and set out as rapidly as he could make his way through brush and vines up the mountainside. But it was toilsome work. The mountain became steeper, the growth thicker, his load of fish weighed him down. He was almost tempted to retrace his way up the river and brook to the trail, but was loath to consume such an amount of time when it seemed possible to reach the peak by a direct course. Then it became darker in the woods, and the bushes seemed damp with moisture. He wondered if he was entering a fog that had gathered on the mountain top, and, once there, if he could find what he sought. Only the big fish, swinging at his side and dragging in the leaves as he crept through the underbrush, gave him comfort in what was rapidly becoming an unpleasant and difficult undertaking. Presently he was reduced to climbing hand over hand, clinging to bushes and bracing his feet as best he might. All at once he was face to face with a cliff which rose sheer for sixty feet or more, and which it seemed impossible to ascend. He followed it for a distance, and came, at last, to where a heavy vine dropped from above, and this made a sort of ladder, by which, after a great deal of clinging and scrambling, he managed to reach the upper level, where he dropped down to catch breath, only to find when he came to look for his big fish, that somehow, in the upward struggle, it had broken loose from the basket and was gone. It was most disheartening. "'If I were not a man, I would cry,' he said wearily. Then, peering over the cliff, he was overjoyed to see the lost fish hanging not far below, suspended by the willow loop he had made. So then he climbed down carefully and secured it, and struggled back again, this time almost faint with weariness, but happy in regaining his treasure. And now he realized that a fog was indeed upon the mountain. At the foot of the cliff and farther down the air seemed clear enough, but above him objects only a few feet distant were lost in a white mist while here and there a drop of rain struck in the leaves. It would not do to waste time. A storm might be gathering, and a tempest, or even a chill rain on the top of McIntyre, was something to be avoided. He rose, and climbing, stooping, crawling, struggled toward the mountain top. The timber became smaller, the tangle closer, the white mist thickened. Often he paused from sheer exhaustion. Once he thought he heard someone call, but listening there came only silence, and staggering to his feet he struggled on. 
End of chapter 7